Well, welcome this morning, and I can see none of you guys are hunters because you're all here instead of off sitting in a prepping your tree stand or whatever. Freezing your tush off. Yeah, well, it's always amazing how many people don't come this Sunday because they've gone to go hunting for tomorrow. Yes. It's an all-year occurrence. It's an all-year yeah. Right? All right, we're going to start Colossians this morning. Um, so we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. We'll be doing verses 9 through 23 this week. Uh, this is session 1. Uh, the gospel's power, the power of the gospel frees us from sin and Satan's control. Uh, we'll be starting there. Um, I want to hand out something as I was uh, working on the lesson this week. Um, I ran across a explanation of the ancient Hebrew concept for the universe. It's their worldview. So I'm going to pass them around if you want one. I'm going to put it up on the uh, up on the thing here. This explains a lot um, of how they viewed uh, the universe um, with it and why some things are worded in certain ways. You can see, we'll start here. This is, uh, we'll start at the bottom. And it, it kind of looks like a world because this is their, I mean, a physical worldview. They believed that, that there was a great deep when they talk about that in scripture, they're talking about a great deep, which is under everything. It's kind of like the end of the, end of the universe. It's, it's down there. So we know that it is also above us. I mean, we look at the great deep. It's outer space. It's, it goes on infinitely. They viewed it as being under the earth. Um, and so that's the bottom. And then you have the foundations of the earth. And they, they understood that to be like pillars. And that, so that's what these are here. These are the foundations of the earth. And they thought that they just went down into the great deep and kind of floated there. So that it's very literal. This is their understanding. This foundation is where Sheol was. It's in the middle of the foundations that hold the ground up. They did not have a concept of a round, globular Earth uh, like we do. They didn't see it as a sphere. They thought it was maybe not quite flat like the flat Earthers, but that it was layered, and it's the whole universe, too. Out on the sides are the foundations of the heavens. They believed that it was a giant arch. They talk about the windows in the doors in heaven, and they believed that this was the firmament, and it was an actual arch that held up, what? Okay, sorry. It held up the waters that were above. So they believed space had water above it. Um, but it was like way out there. Above that was the heavens. This is where the heavens were. There was a gate to heaven here, and above that is where God's throne was. So go out past the universe. Now, I skipped the middle part here. There were doors into the heavens. And so when it talks about the doors and windows of heaven opening and stuff pouring down, they thought it was real. 
That was above the sun, moon, and stars. So our what you can see in the night sky, that was the that wasn't the heavens. That's part of the earth, and it was under the firmament, which was sitting on the foundations, which were down in the ground somewhere. If you went far enough out, you would find those foundations. <laughs> then you have the earth itself, and the mountains, the seas, and all that, and the land. So they, they thought of it as very flat. They thought of it as um, layers on layers on layers. There's no hell. You notice that? They had no concept for hell. Sheol was just a place to hold the dead. It's where they went. It wasn't a place of punishment. It was like a holding tank. Really, that's what, the, that's what they talk about. And it was divided, that there was an upper and a lower, and that's where the bosom of Abraham was. Remember the story Jesus told about the, uh, the rich man and the poor man? There, there was a chasm that was separated, and there's a lower part and an upper part, but it wasn't a place of torment. The, the hell was not part of their concept of the universe. And so this was... This was their concept, and I hope this helps you understand some of the language as you look into the Old Testament particularly, and even in some of the New Testament, they literally believed that there were doors and windows in heaven, and God would rain down blessings from them, so therefore heaven was above that, which that was above what we think of as outer space um, and stuff. So this is their view. Has this been around for a while? I've never, um, I've never seen this. Like no, that. I have never either. I just saw it th this week. I knew that they believed that it was all physical, that it was really right. there, um, that this was an actual, that the, their descriptions were an actual thing, which some of science agrees with, some of it it doesn't, but I had never seen it drawn out. Yeah. That's why I wanted to share, because I think this helps when you read those passages that are a little on the picturesque side. So when you go back and you start reading um, Ezekiel, Daniel, places like that where it's very um, visionary, well, now that you see this is how they view, some of that changes what you think because this is what they're thinking. Um, so I wanted to give that to you. When you first showed that water's above the ferment, uh -huh. like, that's really odd, like a capsule. But I was thinking, well, that would make sense. Where does the rain come from? Well, but they, above, but they knew so clouds. Right, but the rain, well, the rains, because it says that God would shut up the windows in the heavens when, like, um, Isaiah, uh, not Isaiah. Elijah. Elijah said that he would pray that God would shut the windows and it wouldn't rain. So the water didn't come from the clouds. It came from God in the firmament above and literally shutting the windows. <laughs> that they were opening somewhere above all of that, and that they were being shut. I mean, so th I mean that just changes your whole mindset. That they thought that heaven was riding; the heavens were riding on top of that. Yet, and God was still above you. Any significance to the six? You, you call those pillars there? Yeah. Any why there's? No, I don't know that there is. Okay. Hmm. Um, that's just how the drawing was okay. was made. Did they ever believe that the windows open more on special days or like holy days or the doors? I don't know. Like I, I don't know if they did or didn't. Um, but they believed they could be opened and closed. <laughs> just, I mean, from our scientific worldview, that just seems stupid to us. But this is, this is their worldview, and thus it makes sense uh, that that's how they saw it. They had a few less 
telescopes and all that stuff. Yeah, right. If you okay. So anyway, that's food for thought. Take that. You can think about that all week. It'll drive you crazy. And next week, oh, next week, yes. Uh, there will be class next week. Mark Deeroff will be teaching. Um, he is so excited that I'm going to let him teach. Not like what. Uh, so he will be here. Uh, be nice to him. No. It is hard to find somebody willing to teach adults. Everybody I ask. I love to teach, but children. And they don't want to, nobody wants to teach you adults. I'm in So I don't know what y'all have done to people in the past, but y'all be nice to him. Uh, all right. All right, so let's get into uh, Colossians. All right, so here we go. This is our map. Uh, it should be in your packets that I gave you. And uh, it's the trip of Paul's as he's made his way through. All right, here's the map. Anybody know where I can find Colossae? I see it's right here. It's right here? Yeah. <laughs> it's in Asia. It's in Asia. Okay, so here's Asia. It's over here. Everybody? All right, there it is. You see the little blue circle? Oh, that's perfect. This is Colossae. This red line is Paul's journeys. What do you notice? Yeah, Paul doesn't go to Colossae. Uh, Colossae is up by Laodicea, um, right along the river. There's uh, Thyatira, there's Areopolis. There's all sorts of cities around it. They're all cities inland that Paul never went to. We can see it was a trade city because of being along that river. It's up in the mountains. What comes from mountains? Water. Snow. Snow. Mines. There you go. Gold, silver, iron. Bronze, well, no, I guess not bronze is made, but copper, that's what you need for it. Tin, those sorts of things. Often mined out of that. This is, this is going to be Turkey. This is modern-day Turkey, southern Turkey. Uh, is it uh, the Donnellys? Greg Donnelly, mm -hmm. that's where he works. That's the region that he's in often is southern Turkey, in and around there. Any update on his health real quick? I have not, I've not heard. I know that he's speaking in Awana next week. This week. This week, okay. Um, no, no, it is two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. All right, no, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. You, I you can ask. She asked me if I was trying to mess you up. I said, sure. <laughs> I split my head. <laughs> anyway, so this okay. gives us an idea of the, the part of the world we're talking about as we look at this. Um, it is significant that Paul was never there. I'm going to give us some pictures. I've got a, a great slideshow of pictures of the area as it is today. Um, just bear with me. I love slides. Oh, okay, this is... How long did it take you to do that, man? Push a button. <laughs> this is modern-day Colossae. That's what it looks like today. It's the remains of the city. It is still unexcavated. It is not important enough that anybody has bothered to do a dig there. Um... This is the ancient colony where it was built. It's just kind of filled in. Now, what is important is this. This is the Areopolis. Um, it's the next city north. And I'll give you some reason. The Areopolis has been thoroughly excavated. 
It's talked about in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. There was a large Christian community there. At the time of Paul and his writing, it was a growing city. The gate was, this is the gate. It was erected by Font, the proconsul Fontis, in honor of uh, Emperor Domitian, who reigned between 81 and 96 AD. So now what does that tell you? Well, the, the, no, it has nothing to do with the book. During the Jesus' would have been time? Demolished by then. No, it wouldn't have been demolished by then. During Jesus' time? It wouldn't have been built yet. It was built between 81 and 96. So it's after the temple was destroyed. That's what I said. Oh, I thought you said it was destroyed. No, no. <laughs> no, no. It's after that's the age of this was built around the time Paul was writing the book of Colossae. This was being constructed. Uh, it was the main entrance to the city on the north side. So you would come at it, if you remember your map, from the north. Which, if you remember looking at the map, you can see it on the wall over here. Paul, Paul's journey took him up and around. Colossae is down over here. It would have been the northern entrance. There was a lot... You went up and around those mountains to the north of it. There were paths that came down. You can see, if you're on your map, you can see that they came down through the mountains to it. So it was a northern entrance. Um, right inside the gate were the public latrines. That's what these are. Uh, I have no idea how they work, but those are the, they were right there. She came in the gate. Wow. I wonder if the women's had a longer life. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, uh, it's a public building on Fontis Street. As you head north, this is one of the uh, public facilities that would have been there, probably bureaucrats and the like. There's, there's a lot to the city that's still standing. Um, what is this one? These are the remains of, oh, I can't even say this word, Bola Utorian, um, which is a, a circular, semicircular seating, leveled seating, it would have been the council chambers. So the city council would have met in there and they would sit up there and the speaker would stand down at the bottom and whatever the day's business was, but that's still standing. This is the Nymphereen. It's a large stone building uh, that was surrounded by water, or was, yeah, stone surrounding water. It was a pool for drawing your water out of. Uh, it was also a sacred site where you would find busts to the city gods, which were Zeus, Hera, Artemis, Apollo, and Sol um, Salome, who is the moon goddess. So those were the gods that would, they would worship. And so this would have been the public watering hole. Um, when they talk about those in other places, particularly Jesus would meet and met the lady at the well. Well, Greek cities... It wasn't just a well, it would be a large pool, um, which they were in Jerusalem. There are several pools that are mentioned in Jerusalem. This is interesting. It's one of only a few left in the world uh, below the temple to Apollo. So Apollo's temple was built up here. Um, beneath it is this, is this opening which 
which is a plutonium. Not like the element. <laughs> it is a shrine to the god Pluto, who is the god of what? The underworld. The underworld, right. So this little cave entrance is an entrance to? Oh, the, underworld. the underworld. Hades, yeah. Um, it's one of a few. It is interesting. These entrances um, were few and far between, but they are filled with poisonous gas. Likely from something underground, the fissure or whatever, natural gas or vapors from an active uh, volcano and all that. They would take the sacrifices made to Pluto into the cave. They would be live and they would die. And they wouldn't have a mark on them because it's noxious gas. The priests were trained to hold their breath for long periods of time so they could take the animals in, leave them, come back out, and they would die, and they would go in and say, look, the god Pluto took your sacrifice. Isn't that cool? Yeah, how much money do they, do they get? I have no idea, but yeah. See, also, it's like, this, this is how the ancient world worked. These were the secret arts and rites. This is important because Colossae, we're going to see that, that Colossae's got an issue and we're going to talk about Gnostics and all that in a minute. But yeah, this is part of how they <coughs> fooled people into believing. Anyway, moving on. Uh, this is a Roman theater. We've seen lots of these if you've ever watched um, those. But this is a very well-kept one. Actually, the stage has been rebuilt. Um, it is very decorative with um, uh, friezes. Uh, of my the mythic stories of Artemis. She's uh, one of the main gods in the city. Um, this, here you go. Anybody know what this is? Special seating for the governor. Yeah, box, these are the first box seats. <laughs> <laughs> these are box seats. I'm gonna be watching the Pittsburgh game next week. In box seats, that's where I'd be sitting. Yeah, they were for dignitaries or other special guests. It like were a round there. box. Huh? It's a round box. Well, yes, but you would sit, everybody would sit in there. Everyone could see you too. Exactly, they're right. Well, if you go, let me go back a picture. It's actually right. Oh, dude, that it's right there. Uh, it's right this, it, yeah, it's right here in the center. Center stage. Yep. yep. So that's yeah. Those are the original box seats. So they've always had box seats. <laughs> they've been around. Okay. These are the friezes that are decorating that stage. They're the pillars sit on top, holding it up, and you can just see how ornate they are. This is just decoration. Uh, and they tell the story of Artemis and that one she's hunting and stuff. Here's another one. I don't know what she's doing there. Anyway, so this is the Areopolis, uh, the city Areopolis. Colossae was originally uh, a great trading city. And then it moved to Areopolis. And around the time of Paul was the shift. Areopolis was going, was rising as, uh, as an important place. And Colossae's importance was declining. And so what you have is Paul writes to Colossians because that was the first colony Christian group in the area. But Areopolis is also mentioned because it was, it was the growing Christian community there. So let's uh, jump in and start looking at Colossians. Now we got some of that. You can see if you've got your um, packets, there is a uh, 
listing of the breakdown of the book. If not, it's on the wall behind you. I'll put it up here. We see that the book breaks down into seven or six um, sections. Starts off with greeting and thanksgiving. Then it goes on to God's work in Christ. Paul's ministry. False teaching is denounced. We'll deal with that later on. Um, the Christian life, how we're supposed to live. And then finally his conclusion and um, greetings to specific people. With it, that should you should have a copy of that in your uh, packets that I gave you. All right. So some background uh, on the book itself. Now that we've looked at the city, let's uh, talk about background of the book. First of all, we said Paul was never in Colossae. This is not a church plant that he did. He never went there on any of his missionary journeys that we're aware of. The church was founded, okay, who knows? The church was founded by Epaphroditus. Likely when Paul was in emphasis. If you remember, Paul was in Ephesus for like years. Three, I think it was three years he was there teaching and training leaders. Likely Epaphroditus came, got trained, and went to Colossae and planted a church. And they, were, they just kept coming to Ephesus for training under Paul. If you go back and look at your map, you can see um, how that would have worked. And Paul just kept training more people and sending them out. And the whole of Asia Minor becomes um, evangelized because of Paul planting himself in one city and just training and sending them out and sending them out. So this is a church founded by Epaphroditus. Now, where do we know that name from? Huh? One of the books he wrote. One of the books, okay. <laughs> Good answer. Which one? That one. Well, yes, he's in Acts. <clears throat> Ephesians? No. Wild guess. All right, wild guesses. No, he's from Philippians. We just did it. Oh, man. Remember? He brought the gift from the Philippians, and Paul was sending a letter back with him to the Philippians. It's the same guy. He's the founder of this church in Colossae. That's why he made the trip from Philippi all the way to the Roman prison. And then he was sick while he was there. Yeah, that's Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus travels to Rome to see Paul for help with a fast-spreading um, heresy. Asia Minor was having an issue with heresy. And so Epaphroditus, that's part of why he came. He brought a gift from the Philippians. But he came to talk to Paul about what do we do? How do we fight and combat this? Remember, there's a sheet in your books I told you you ought to read about. The Gnostics. That's who's causing problems. Paul's going to address some of that as he deals with Colossians. Jewish legalism with rigorous self-denials, self-abasement, strict rules on food and drink, Ritualistic observances of festivals. They were ravaging the Asian minor churches. Philippi, Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea. All these places that we read about. They, would all, they don't all have letters. But Paul's going to write the book of Colossians. Write this letter to the Colossians. And it's going to go through Asia Minor. Helping fight this thing. 
The second group is the Gnostics. Gnostic mysticism with Greek philosophy of evil. And it was evil. Um, the need for angelic beings and strict adherence to hierarchy. The idea was you couldn't get to God on your own. You needed angelic help. You needed special knowledge and wisdom, which required certain sacrifice of, in your life and duties that had to be paid. And it's all built upon the guy at the top. It's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Gnosticism is a Ponzi scheme. They're not new. These guys at the top had all the knowledge, and they would trickle it down. And they'd have all these levels, um, the Masons. There are levels to it, and there's a guy at the top who knows everything, but you can't know what you need to accept what you need to know at your level, and you move your way up. There are lots of these organizations out there. They're built on a Ponzi scheme. The Gnostics were the early ones, and they were in the Christian churches, poisoning the gospel, which says that you just need to know Christ to come to God. They rejected that. That's a start. Now you need to build on it. You need to do the right things. You gotta, you know, you gotta bow the right way. You gotta hold your mouth a certain way when you're standing this way at the full moon. They, they had all this secret stuff, and it was mysticism. And thirdly, there was an issue with paganism, with appeasement to heavenly entities and devotion to practices to placate those heavenly forces. These three together were coming through the churches in Asia Minor, and you can just see how churches were taking them and putting them together. Wow, you know what? We still have that today, don't we? Mm -hmm. New Age has crept into the church in every way, shape, and form. You know, you're not really a Christian unless you don't eat this, or you eat, you gotta eat that, or you gotta drink this special whatever, and you gotta take this or rub this oil on you, or there's all sorts of stuff like that. And, and there's all people are like, what you don't do that. You can't really be a Christian unless you do that, or you don't follow this guy. You don't, you know, or in your finances, don't you don't you subscribe to this newsletter and do what he says? Really? That that's what the, the they had the same problem back here. We got it today, too. Um, as we look at this, these are the issues that were facing the Colossian church. Um, but there were other things going on. Uh, Colossians was a city in the province of Phyagra, uh, which is located in the Lycus Valley and Antolia, which we call Asia Minor. It's 120 miles from the port of Ephesus, which is where <coughs> Paul was based out of. So 120 miles. Epaphroditus walked, more than likely, because that's how he moved, 120 miles to plant this church and probably came back with others from this church while Paul was in Ephesus to get training and stuff, just to give you an idea. These guys were dedicated. I mean, we think they're driving 20 minutes to church is long. 120 miles walking. You're talking weeks. I think the uh, the average is like 12 to 18 miles, depending on the load the guy's carrying. Um, I mean, that's, yeah, you're, you're talking a trip of weeks and then spending several weeks there <coughs> listening and talking with, with Paul. Yeah, it's a, it'd be a serious undertaking. The first known reference to Colossae is found in the writings of Greek historian Herodes who mentions that Xerxes, this is the Persian emperor Xerxes, 
stopped there briefly at the city of Colossae during the Persian Wars. So this is an old city. I mean, we're, we're talking first century A.D. Xerxes goes all, we're talking time of Esther. So you're talking like four or five hundred B.C. It's an old city, been around a while. Um, the demise of Colossae was linked to the construction of a trade route. The Romans built roads to make it faster and more efficient for things and people to move, trade, soldiers, and all that. They built a road around the third century, and it went west to Colossae. And so all the road traffic went west. This began to decline. It, was, uh, it linked Laodicea up, which wasn't on the trade route. It became a primary, uh, a prominent city, while Colossae fell back to being a rural community. Um, and it elevated the, the city of Areopolis as it was at the start, probably right where, the, if, you, if you look on your map, it's probably right where one of the valleys comes between the mountains, and it's at the head of the valley, and Laodicea was the other end. Um, and then on to Ephesus. Uh, let's see. We believe that Colossians was written around 61 BC. Like I said, right around the time that uh, they were building that gate for the area for Areopolis. Any comments or questions on some background of the city? What's going on? Okay. Good. Then I'm going to pass this around. You can have one of those. The uh, comic strip that everybody likes, at least thinks amusing. Has anybody actually gone out to Right Now Media and watched the video that goes with this? It is really cool. He explains the whole book of Colossians in under three minutes while drawing the thing. Well, I'm sure he, he recorded the drawing and then did an overdub. But he draws it out and explains the whole thing. It's really cool. You can find it if you go to, if you have a Right Now Media account that you got from the church, if you click on the church, I have a, uh, you'll see a list of videos that I recommend, and this is in there, it's the top video right now um, for it, or you can just search for it. But it's a nice overview of the whole thing broken down and all that. You can look at that at your leisure. We're going to move on. All right. So here we go. Now it's your turn. I've done all the talking so far. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Tell me to read that. <clears throat> and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right, thank you. All right, so this is gonna we're gonna start with part two, 
We've skipped the first eight verses because they're just Paul's greetings and salutations. Um, we see that we are set free, Paul says. This is God's work in Christ. And he sets us free. Epaphrodus was in Ephesus and heard Paul, got saved, went to Colossae, and started a church. And he tells us that we are free from the power of sin. That's Paul's point. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the law. We don't have to do it. Remember we said that part of the issue is these legalistic Judaizers roaming around claiming all sorts of stuff. We are free from the domain of darkness. Verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We are free to walk in a manner worthy. We are free to be pleasing to God. We are free to bear fruit. We are free to increase in the knowledge of God. That's that's what the gospel does for us. To increase in the knowledge of God. It is interesting that Paul uses this phrase. And I don't think it means what we think it means because this is a, it's a poor translation in English. To increase in the knowledge of God, when a, when a, when a first century Christian would say that, they had a different understanding. Fill you with knowledge is actually a single verb. It's a single verb in Greek that was passive, which means that it was a divine action. God fills you with the knowledge of himself. It's not something we chase after. He's praying that God would fill us with understanding of himself. We cannot know God apart from him. And Paul is praying that we would know, that we would increase in it. We have the freedom from these things. We needed to be free of those things in order to know God. Which is interesting. We, don't, we, we think that we could just know God. That's part of the problem with unsaved people in the church. They think, well, I know God. I don't want to submit to him. I don't want to be, I, I don't want all that. I just have a head knowledge. Well, we can't just have a head knowledge because it requires divine intervention. And God doesn't put that in. Knowledge of him is holy. It's sacred. It's set apart from all other knowledge. And he gives it only to those whose vessel has been cleansed. You cannot be full of sin and know God at the same time. Because that knowledge is holy. You understand what I'm saying? So that's the mindset of Paul, and he's trying to explain this to them. God's will is not an action to be taken, but it's to know him himself. When, we talk about, when they're talking about God's will, it's not what am I supposed to do. It's knowing him, knowing his character, 
understand his being. The idea that I can pray and gain this information, that's a Gnostic idea. That there is this secret will of God out there. And if I just pray hard enough, or I fast long enough, or I, I do a certain rite or ritual, or whatever it is, I walk an aisle, and I'll gain that knowledge, and then I can seek for the next. That's Gnosticism. There's a lot of that in the church today, that I can gain that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God putting it in you. It's an action of divine, not an action of human. And it requires a vessel that is free from the power of sin, the power of the law, the domain of darkness. We must be in Christ in order to receive the will of God, which is an understanding of who he is. The indwelling knowledge comes from the Holy Spirit in us as we study about who God is we know how to act in a manner that corresponds to God's character. See how that works? How do we know the will of God? We've got to know Him. When we know Him and understand His character, we know how to act. Where most of us in here are parents. We try to teach our children character. And we tell them, don't lie, okay? But when they see us lie, what happens? <laughs> They learn our character, don't they? And they follow suit. They see, we tell them, don't steal. And then we cheat on our taxes, or we bring home stuff from work. What do they see? They see our character, and they respond accordingly, don't they? It's the same as with God. We watch God's character. That's why understanding the Old Testament, understanding who he is, is so important. We see his character there. We see the character of Christ, and we need to understand it and then do it likewise. That's the will of God. It's not some secret thing. Oh, should I, should I buy this or buy that or marry this one or that one? It's what would God do? You know, the whole thing, we, we make fun of the what would Jesus do thing. But if we are studying who he is and watching how he acts and responds, we need to imitate it. I think Paul actually says that somewhere. Be imitators of Christ. <laughs> That's what he's saying here. But we cannot be imitators of Christ because he does not give us the knowledge unless we are free from the power of sin, which means we need to be saved. We need to be Christians because then we get the Holy Spirit who brings this stuff up and we see it as we study God and see what he's done. We need to go and do likewise. All right. She was gonna. She was gonna take to the idea. The, see, part of the idea with fasting is is that you're replacing your normal activity of eating and stuff with time in prayer, time in study. And we we in the Western world have taken fasting as the act of just not eating. Yeah, that's what. And I we thought. continue on with our life. That's not what fasting is. Uh, fasting is you put away. 
away this activity, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be food, but you put away this activity to spend concerted time and effort in studying of the word and prayer. So you're not just like, okay, I'm not eating, so I'm going to work through lunch, and I get to go home early and all that, and I'm fasting. That's not fasting. When Jesus did it, he went away to a lonely place so that he could just be with the Father. Now, he didn't need to study anything because he was God. He was in perfect communion with it. Mm -hmm. But we've taken fasting to be just the absence of eating of food. And that's not what it is. You can fast from anything. Um, you can fast from TV, from book reading, from Facebook. But the purpose is not to not do those things. The purpose is to take that time and use it for God and study and prayer, maybe even ministry. You're going to, you're going to put that off for that. That's the whole point of it. It's not just that, Oh, it's not a, I don't do this because you know, I'm, I'm being godly. Unless you're focusing on God. It isn't godly. It's just something you're doing. No different than dieting. Thank you. Yep. Going, going. All right. Yeah. Move. All right, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything... That in everything he might be preeminent. It's the whole fasting thing. It's a focus on him. Everything he should be first in, in preeminent. God's work in Christ. By Christ, all things were created. I don't care how it works. They're created by him. I don't understand how it worked. He doesn't detail it. We don't have scientific diagrams, blueprints. I, I don't know. Whatever science discovers, it's still through him. Doesn't matter what the, th the cause is. He did it. All things hold together. We keep digging deeper and deeper into the atom to figure out what makes it work? The God particle, as they call it, that they think that they've discovered, is the particle of gravity that holds the atom together, which is what binds everything together, and all that. You know what it is? It's Christ. Maybe there's a particle. Maybe there isn't. Whatever it is, he created it. See, I'm not worried about science and what they find. Because it all comes back to him because you can't reduce it far enough that you don't have need of somebody to design the system. Somebody to give it power. What gave it power in the first place? 
They talk about the Big Bang. Okay, so what caused the Big Bang? They don't know. It just happened. It just happened. Okay. I don't have a problem with that because God spoke. You know, that's a, you know, somebody that, that powerful speaks. It's going to be an explosion. So maybe it was. I don't know. I don't care. What caused it? Well, we don't know. They have no clue what existed before nothing to cause nothing to become something. <laughs> I do. <laughs> that's the problem with their systems. They reduce to nothing, and they don't have any more answers. There is an answer. God. All the fullness of God dwells through Christ. God's being dwells in Christ. Do you understand that? Everything that was the Old Testament God that was on the mountain, that was huge and loud and booming and all that, it's in Christ. It dwells in him. Everything that caused Moses to glow with that godly glow that created all the fear in the Israelites that they wouldn't even get close to the mountain. All that Shekinah glory that was in the temple, God took it all and funneled it into his son. The fullness of that is in him. The Old Testament and Jewish background of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding denotes aspects of the character of God that he seeks to ingrain in his people. So he sent Christ to be that example for us. All of that gets boiled down into one guy and we study and we watch him and we're told, be like Christ, emulate Christ, because it is the fullness of all the character of God in it. Not all this other painted on stuff, whether it be secret knowledge or practices or worships or festivals that's not what it is it's being like Christ and understanding him and that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's why he gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would recognize it and see it and go I need to be like that it shines the light on our failures in our life and we see oh my word how nasty I am in comparison to God and that little light the Holy Spirit just shines it and finds something and then you're like Oh my word, I've got to change this. I don't want to. I don't want to do it. No, there's everybody else does that. And it just seems to beat on us and beat on us. And he doesn't give up, does he? He's relentless until we change. And then all of a sudden, we experience an understanding of God. And it's like, wow, why did I never do this before? And then he shines a light somewhere else. It's kind of this never-ending process. Right? Yeah. But that's what it is. If you take everything of the, of, that the Jews knew, all the Old Testament, pour it in. That's Christ. And in him dwells the fullness of God for us to emulate. Now come to that question. The peace that passes all understanding. Oh, yes. We don't get it. He does. Let me explain this in one run-on sentence. <laughs> Again, this is the, if you don't like it, that's fine. This is my explanation, if you will. For Christians to grow up includes the awakening of intellectual powers that allow him to think coherently and practically about God and his purposes for his people. Paul never plays off spiritual life against intellectual understanding 
They go together. Quit thinking so much and just be spiritual. That, Paul never says that. <coughs> it requires both. We need to understand. We cannot emulate without understanding. Blind practice is not what God's wanting. That's what Jewish legalism was. You just did it because somebody said so. That doesn't get you any. You don't get brownie points for that. <coughs> Emulating Christ means understanding what you're doing, understanding what he's like, and then doing it. That's what he wants. He wants us to know him. And through knowing him, act accordingly. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. That's what was broken in the garden. That's what he reestablishes. But we don't have the contact with him that we did in the garden. So now we've got to do the hard work of reading and studying and working it out together as iron sharpens iron and all that. We learn so that we can be more like him. And then when we're more like him, we have a connection with him that you cannot have without him. Comment? Question? Is that like repentance then? Like sure. Every time you repent, that brings you closer and more like Christ. Because you realize I'm doing this. I'm, not, I'm doing something that God doesn't do. I'm doing something that God doesn't want, never wanted me to do. And we repent. And that brings us closer to him. It's, the, it's that continual cycle of learning. But like the fullness of Christ. So less of me, more of him. Yeah. He didn't want cookie cutters, but he wanted character cutters. He wants our character, but character plays out differently because we have different lives. I will never have to struggle with stealing money from a bank because I'm not a bank teller. I don't work in a bank. I don't have those. So I don't have that struggle, but somebody else does. But there is God's character that says I don't steal, that he doesn't steal. The character plays out differently in each person. The character shows up in our lives and it's practiced differently by each of us. But we all need to have that characteristic and we have to learn it and we have to practice it. That's just a really simple explanation. Go ahead. Is it bad to think then, oh, if I do this, I know it's wrong, I won't sleep at night. But I'm using that as an excuse so I won't sleep at night. You know, not as an excuse, but I want to sleep at night. So if I <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a, that's a reason. Um, it's not a bad reason, but it isn't. We, we, we need to realize that, it, that God wouldn't do it. It's not that I, I, I don't sleep at night. It's because I, I, I know I've done wrong. I mean, there, there's that whole issue that sin causes... Um, Anxiety yeah. when we've sinned, because especially if we know that it's a sin. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to recognize that this is something God doesn't do. God doesn't want us to do it. We shouldn't do it because God doesn't do it. Then that, that's it. But yeah, it's, it's all part of the learning process. That's where the intellect comes into play as we understand that and we understand ourselves. Why am I not doing this? Why do I not do something that I should be doing? Yeah. We, we need to, that. See, it takes the intellect. We've got to have knowledge. We've got to have understanding. It's not just this mythical spiritualness. 
I need to pray for more spiritualness. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means we need more knowledge. We need more understanding, which requires us to do something uh, about it. All right, last set. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, God's work in Christ through his death. We are reconciled from hostile thinking and evil actions. Just look at the world. The world without the reconciliation to Christ is an evil place. We have talked about what's going on in the news, and this week didn't get any better, did it? And this is the week of Thanksgiving and peace and all that love and all that, and it's still pretty nasty out there, isn't it? And we're coming into the season of peace. And people are killing each other over Nintendos and, and, and stuff. This year's Black Friday wasn't as bad as past years. I don't, didn't see anything about anybody getting trampled to death. But it happens. Because we are not reconciled through the death of Christ to God. We have hostile and evil actions. We are, through his death, supposed to present ourselves holy and blameless. We cannot present ourselves holy and blameless without his death. It takes his blood to cover us because we are hostile in our thinking and evil in our actions and incapable of presenting ourselves to God. Paul told us, that they were as dirty rags, everything in his past before Christ. Same thing, different book. Through his death, we continue in faith. It isn't a once and done thing. It is continual. Greek is so much uh, more accurate a language than English because they have tenses of the verbs that we just have past, present, and future. They have a future continual. So something is taking place now, and the verb indicates that it will continue into the future, and that's what salvation is. It is something that takes place at a moment in time, and then continues on into the future indefinitely. We don't have that understanding in English, but that's what there is. There are, there's tenses that allow us to understand that it is a continual thing. Pray us. without ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing. All of life is a prayer. And finally, through his death, we have stable and steadfast in hope. We cannot be steadfast and stable, or uh, yeah, stable and steadfast <laughs> in hope without Christ. His death is what we stand on. It is our hope. It is our understanding. It isn't the dying. It's the sacrifice that he made. 
and recognizing that that is our continual hope, that that is enough that we stand upon. Other comments, questions? All right, a couple of things to hopefully take with you. First of all, pleasing God is our goal, Paul says. Can we please God? Not without his help. Not without him, you're right. But we can, by bearing fruit. In order to bear fruit, we have to know his character. So we need to grow in knowledge. That's pleasing to God. Being here on a Sunday morning is pleasing to God. Studying your Bible during the week is pleasing to God. Whether you read it, listen to it, whatever. If you're growing in the understanding of who God is and his character, it's pleasing to God. Being strengthened for adversity. Coming together with other believers, whether it be at a meal, a coffee, just a phone call to say, hey, how's your week going? That strengthens us for adversity. We may not understand it, but it does. We are social beings. So is God. Wow. God's social. You ever think about that? So talking with other people, socializing, eating the cookies and coffee. I don't know that he does the same thing, but he's got something similar that he does with the Holy Spirit and Jesus. They stand around at the water cooler and they converse and they're in each other's lives. There is more life stuff happening back there at that coffee and cookie table than is going on anywhere else. You ever think about that? You had to stop us from doing that. Well, I know. We we can't do it to the exclusion of gaining knowledge. We've got to put it all together. And wait. That was a good one. Sorry, Andrew. (laughs) No, he's right. Giving thanks for salvation. When we worship God and we thank him and praise him, that's pleasing to God. I mean, that was pretty self-explanatory. So pleasing God is our goal. Make that your goal this week. Secondly, Jesus enables us to live a God-honoring life. That's what he came for. And Jesus' death makes it possible to be reconciled to God. Once we are reconciled to him, everything opens up to us. We can gain, we can do, we can live in a manner pleasing to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you reconciled us to yourself. Lord, help us to gain an understanding of God and his character so that we can live it in our lives. Let us see and understand how it goes together and where we need to change. Lord, each of us has a different life, and it plays out in different ways, but all of us need to know you more. Help us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.